0: Well, Matt has mentioned that today's sermon text is right at the end of 1 Timothy. So if you'll find the last two verses of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, that's where we'll be today. That passage, it's only two verses long, so if the sermon's not good, you probably have plenty of time to memorize those two verses. That'd be a good use of your time. And it feels like it was written this morning. Like some, whoever read today's news, you're much more well-read than I am. But I imagine that if you compare this passage with whatever today's news was, you would see the relevance obviously. To put it plainly, you can name some people who fit into the positive and the negative side of this passage. There is zero doubt in my mind that you know the names of people of whom it could be said, they guard what God has entrusted to us. You also know the names of some people. You might be one of those people who have gone astray from the faith. In our day, when a lot of people are just celebrating their depravity, through things like deconstructing their faith, and headlines are being made in fact major news organizations do interview so-called pastors who are unhitching from the bible and plenty of people are gaining popularity because they're abandoning jesus our passage concludes with a very power-packed message the whole message of 1st timothy very power-packed message by telling us how we can join such depraved people. In a certainly strange title to the last sermon of such a wonderful book, today's sermon title is How to Go Astray from the Faith. Or as we've said in another sermon title in this book, because of what the verses said, you could put it, How to Quit on Jesus. If you want to become one of the very sad statistics of those who appeared to have started so well, only to have your faith fizzle out, today's passage tells us how that can be you. It's a staggering portrait of the first three soils in Jesus' parable of the four soils. Those who appeared to be Christians for a little while, they sprang up quickly only to have their rootless faith plucked up, scorched by the sun, or choked out by the cares of this world. So may God help us, and I mean you and me, right here, right now, to hear and obey His Word as it is both read and proclaimed 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 20 Oh Timothy guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please let us hear and receive the force of that one-letter word, O, in this passage. Wake somebody up, Jesus. Jesus. Cause somebody to care about what you care about, Jesus. We pray the last line of this book would be the bedrock of our lives, that by Your grace, we together as a church would guard the deposit of the Scripture-revealed Gospel of Your glorious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if when you... Followed along my reading of those two verses, if you could see the streaks of the wet marks left by the tears, not on my face, but on Paul's and Timothy's and the church at Ephesus. I don't know if you could feel the import of the sorrow that these two verses have embedded in them. If just one person goes astray from the faith, if one person leaves Jesus, quits the faith, this church... Grace Church, Memphis, this one has enough experiential knowledge of the depths of that pain and heartbreak to understand how many tears flow down the cheeks of broken hearted Christians as a result of that departure. But our passage is not about one. Our passage compounds that sorrow. Waves crashing onto the shore of our souls. It's not just one. The pronoun in verse 21, some, is plural. Some have gone astray from the faith. Not one, some. Paul knows their names. So does Timothy. Paul was their pastor for three and a half years. Timothy now is. The whole church at Ephesus knows exactly who Paul's talking about. The lure of, quote, worldly empty chatter, verse 20. The attraction of teaching. They got sick of hearing the same old message. So the new falsely called knowledge, verse 20, had exposed the illegitimacy of the faith of some. It's a sad passage. I've asked week after week for us to try to envision this little church. We know that sitting over here were some slaves, and beside them were some women whose husbands had died, widows. Over here, there were some very materially rich people and some very materially poor people. There were slave owners. There were pastors, plural, scattered out among them. I don't know if you can see this church, but all of them are listed in this letter. And then there's some empty chairs where so-called brother so-and-so used to sit. And the sister who led such-and-such ministry and taught whatever class used to sit. But they're gone now. Not because they're godly people and the Lord moved them around the vineyard as He sometimes does. That's okay. They're not gone to another church. They're gone to no church. They're gone from Jesus. John Stott said in his Commentary on that first little designation. Oh, Timothy. Paul reverts in this passage to the false teachers whose damaging activity has been the background of this whole letter. Because Paul knew that everyone, including Timothy, including you, including me, are susceptible to the lies of the devil that deviate our heart away from Christ, just like Adam and Eve were deceived by the enemy's worldly chatter and false knowledge. Paul's final command in this whole letter, which is about being faithful to the gospel, that's the title of our whole series, the final command is guard what has been entrusted to you. There's three parts of these two verses, a command, a reason, and the power. The command is guard. The reason is apostasy, and the power is grace. Guard, that's the command. That's the one imperative in the whole two-verse passage. The reason we are to guard what's entrusted is some have fallen away from the faith, apostasy, and the power to obey is grace, verse 21. So first, the command. Verse 20 and 21a is the command. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Before we dig into that very loaded phrase, guard the deposit given to you, before we dig into that, look at the designation again at the beginning of, beginning of verse 20. Oh, Timothy. If you just skim back up a few verses in chapter 6, verse 11, you'll see that Timothy is referred to not by name, but as man of God. 6.11 but here it's by his name. It's actually a play on words. Timothy's name means one who honors God. Oh, man who honors God, guard what God gave you. Honor him. It's a play on words, but his name is preceded by a very short word, but a very rich word. So short that it can't get any shorter. It's one letter long. Oh, there's pathos. There's feeling in that word. It's an emotional appeal from the Apostle, from the Holy Spirit, through him, to his son in the faith, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. One commentary on the Greek New Testament said, This word, oh, is an emotional interjection. It is used here to add solemnity, solemnness, and urgency right now to his personal address to Timothy. So this coming Wednesday night, Lord willing, our elders will have our regular scheduled elders meeting. If at some point in that meeting the other elders looked at me and said, Jordan, guard the gospel. I hope that I would say amen, so help me God. But if they were to say, Oh, Jordan, guard the gospel, I would understand a little more deeply that they too are feeling the weight of the charge. It's not just me, it's them and me. Oh, Timothy, Paul is feeling something. There's pathos in this. And very deeply, he is identifying with this command to Timothy. And I'm saying to you, Oh, dear brothers and sisters, those of you who are real Christians, feel the import of this assignment oh fellow christian guard the gospel so now that we've got the O oh, timothy the command is guard what has been entrusted to you the esv renders that phrase some of you have it in your lap O oh, timothy guard the deposit entrusted to you we have to understand three words to understand that phrase guard deposit entrusted. What is it? It's a deposit. It's almost certainly the same thing Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy when he writes again to Timothy in that letter, chapter 1, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. That's the deposit. It's the oracles of God It's the speech of the divine. It's the self-revelation of the self-revealing God. It's God giving Himself to you in words, codified, written. It's God handing you a revelation of Himself, an objective truth revealed by God for you, outside of yourself. Guard this. Guard it not as a sacred relic that gets dusty in a museum somewhere, but guard what it is, but guard what it also reveals, namely a who and a how. The revelation of the triune God and how you, a sinful man, can be made right with Him through what He's done in His Son. Guard the oracles of God and guard the Gospel of Christ. There's so many passages where Paul uses parallel phrases that we can faithfully deduce that's what he has in mind. The gift of God's Word written and the Gospel message that it reveals about the Word of God incarnate, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the most precious treasure in the world. You don't have anything more valuable than that book and the person that it reveals. That's the deposit. How do you get it? It's entrusted Paul said this was entrusted to Timothy. Guard what has been entrusted to you. But we can read, even in this very same letter, that's entrusted not only to Timothy and by application to pastors. Timothy was the pastor of a church. But it's entrusted to the whole church. The same letter. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, The church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. If I preach lies to you about God, get another pastor. This has been entrusted to us. God has placed the treasure of his gospel unfolding word written into the care of his people. Paul uses the same word entrusted in a very similar way in many other passages. One of those is the book of Romans chapter 3. And he says, what advantage does the Jew have? His answer is not nothing. His answer is they got a huge advantage. You want to know the advantage the Jews have over all the Gentiles, which is probably all the people in this room? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They got the Bible. That's the advantage they got. Now you have it. Guard what has been entrusted to you? Paul Washer shared an illustration that I'm going to adapt just a little bit for my purposes today, but it basically goes like this. If I were to go on a long journey and leave my most priceless possession in your care, how would you honor that assignment? Let's say the possession is a person, my wife, Tracy... But if when I returned from my long journey, instead of finding that you took good care of her, you exploited and exposed her, you used her and profited off of her from your nefarious activity, I can summarize by saying it would not go very well with you and me upon my return. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, not an illustration, not an imagine, Paul said to that church, quote, many people walk in craftiness, adulterating the word of God, prostituting God's book. It's not going to go well with those people when the king comes back from his journey. Concerning that word entrusted, Paul does not want us to misunderstand what he's talking about. Earlier in the same letter, chapter 1, verse 11, I have been entrusted with the glorious gospel of the happy God. The word blessed God is makareos, happy. He entrusted me with his gospel. That's what he's talking about to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 13 and 14, retaining the standard of sound words, which you heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The treasure which Timothy must guard by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul calls in 2 Timothy, the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's longhand for gospel. Dear Grace Church, want the Bible to ask us a question. I put myself in your shoes. Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness? Let us embrace with courage what Paul's commanding Timothy to do. So we have the deposit, that's sacred, written Word of God, the sacred Son of God, God's word incarnate, the logos, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the gospel accomplishments that he procured on our behalf, that sinful men could be reconciled to a holy God through the death of the son of God and his victorious resurrection. If you'll flee to him by faith, if you'll turn from your sin and embrace him as your king, you will be saved. Guard this gospel. But now we got this word guard. We know what we're talking about now, at least a little bit. What are we... To do The only command in the two verses, the only imperative, there's other imperatival type words, but the only imperative is guard. Well, what does that mean? Well, that same word shows up the same way five other times in the New Testament. It's used like this, Luke 12, guard against greed. You know what that means without somebody having to preach a long sermon on it. Right here it's used, guard against false knowledge. So you've got to have the truth to be able to do that. 2 Timothy 4, guard against apostate people. Like who, Paul? Like Alexander the coppersmith. Don't listen to him. He's lying to you about God. Guard against him. Or 2 Peter chapter 3, guard against deception, or 1 John chapter 5, guard against idols. So we have a deposit. It was entrusted. We are to guard it. Now, I don't know how many people today here are 75 years old or older. I know there's at least one. But if you're not yet 75, then every single day of your life, every single second, morning, noon, and night, your entire lifetime, There have been United States soldiers from the 3rd US Infantry Regiment guarding what we describe as the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. 75 years, morning, noon, night, no exception. 21 paces from about that side of the stage to that side of the stage. Walk across, turn around, walk back, do it again. During the winter months from October 1st to March the 29th, they do that for an hour, and then they change. And another guard does it, and they change. In the summer months from April to the end of September, they do it for 30 minutes at a time and 21 paces, 21 paces, 21 paces, then they change the guard. I did a deep dive into this this week. I just kind of get hooked on stuff and keep going and going and going. I won't bore you with all that I found, but I will read to you just a little bit of story time with Pastor Jordan here from the Arlington National Cemetery website. Overlooking the nation's capital from its serene 624-acre hilltop perch, Arlington National Cemetery is located on the resplendent west bank of the Potomac River. Despite the many distinguished and revered war heroes and the two former U.S. presidents who are buried there, there is nowhere within the hallowed grounds of Arlington National Cemetery that is more frequented by visitors than the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Located on a hill, on high ground, at almost the perfect geographic center of the cemetery, the tomb exemplifies valor and honor by remembering those who died committing brave and selfless acts with no one to bear witness to them, since April the 6th, 1948, 75 years ago. The tomb of the unknown soldier has been guarded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, with zero exception. Every hour during winter and every half hour during summer and daylight hours, one guard relieves another from their post in a ceremony with the precision of a Swiss watch. While on duty, the tomb's sentinel marches 21 steps across, across a black mat, passing the grave and its markers of each of the unknown soldiers. He then turns 90 degrees and faces for exactly 21 seconds. Afterward, he turns north in another 21 seconds, which is followed by a crisp shoulder-arms movement where a guard places his rifle on, the sh- on his shoulder nearest the spectators to symbolize that he stands between the tomb and any outside threat. I could keep going but I'll go to the end of these notes which say, the tomb of the unknown soldier is guarded 24 hours a day by members of a special detail from the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, the old guard. The sentinel does not wear any rank insignia which ensures that the guard is a junior in rank to whoever is buried in the tomb. Changing of the guard happens as I mentioned either every hour or every half hour, 24 hours a day seven days a week, 365 or leap years, 66 days, every single year since 1946, no breaks. When the snow and the freezing rain and the hail come in the Northeast, when 9-11 strikes and 2.3 miles away from the crest of that cemetery where that tomb is and smoke is rising from a smoldering Pentagon, I've been there two times in my life, once when I was a little boy and once more recently. And it's one of the most solemn, awe-inspiring things I've ever seen, to watch the changing of the guard. It's absolutely incredible. It'll give you chills, a sense of appreciation, I hope, for what many have done so that you and I could literally sit in this room today and experience what we're now experiencing. Well, I thought it was worth giving that parenthesis and that long of an explanation of what's happening while we sit and stand Because the big verb, the command, the imperative in this text, O Timothy, guard. No shift change. No days off. No exceptions. No matter what else is exploding in the background, you guard this treasure, O Timothy. The command to guard is preceded, as I mentioned, by that deep-feeling word, O Timothy. That little one-letter word, O, is used in another book of the Bible by the same human author, the Apostle Paul, the book of Galatians. They didn't do it. They didn't guard the gospel. They were in danger of losing it altogether. And Paul said in Galatians 3.1, same word, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The Galatian church fell asleep on their gospel watch. Galatian churches, that was a collection of churches in the region of Galatia. They did not guard the gospel as they should have. When the night shift came, they got lazy. When visitors weren't at the cemetery, they took the the short walk instead of the precision walk. The churches were in jeopardy of losing the gospel altogether as a result. So I'm going to say it again guard what? Guard the treasure. The Bible describes the gospel as true riches. Another verse, riches indeed. We're talking about the gospel deposit of eternal life bound up in Jesus Christ. If we lose the gospel, not just us individually as Grace Church, I mean if churches lose the gospel, who else is going to tell somebody? Do not let anyone or anything get their grubby hands on Jesus and his gospel promises. Do not let anything rest away from your heart and from this church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say to my fellow pastors, chapter 6, verse 20, rise up. I say to this whole church, second, 1 Timothy 3.15, stand guard. Now right here, right now, today, somewhere lurking around this building, we have a security team. They've worked every day. This church has been in existence for 17 years. Every Lord's Day, some brothers just faithfully serve. I praise God for them. I give God glory for their selfless sacrifice so that we can sit here as we do, paying attention to what we're focused on while they pay attention and focus on other things. And in a very similar sense, every single Lord's Day for 17 years, I and your other pastors have been on a security team. Not a physical security team, but a spiritual one. We're working security every single Sunday, standing guard before the gospel of Jesus Christ, not protecting you from it, but infecting you with it. Word by word, phrase by phrase, book by book, seeing the beauty, glory, and saving sufficiency of Jesus Christ. This whole sermon series, First Timothy, has been entitled Faithful to the Gospel. That's what the whole book's about. If you lose the gospel, you got nothing to be faithful to. What does a life look like that belongs to Jesus and is lived unto Jesus? In short, the answer is being faithful to the Lord of salvation by living in lockstep with the saved. Just getting ahead of myself barely, a faithful to Jesus life is a churched life. Matt said something to the effect of the Bible doesn't know anything about a professing Christian who's not willing to identify themselves with a the local church. I agree with that. There is no such thing in the Bible. The Bible knows nothing of someone who calls himself a Jesus follower and is not also accountable to a local church. That's a foreign concept to biblical Christianity. There is no such thing. Here in the final two verses of this letter, we see a hypercolor expose of what faithful to the gospel looks like. Our pastors and our people, chapter 3, are on guard. Now, that infantry unit Of the third regiment that i told you about a minute ago they've been walking the whole time i've been talking they've been commanded by their superiors to guard that tomb even at the expense of their own lives and each one of them before being enlisted to that assignment have solemnly saluted their superior in submission to that order dear church Your orders are more sacred. Morning, noon, and night, 24-7, 365. The gospel is the goods that have been given to the godly and must be protected. So this passage works structurally in a way that surprises me. You know the command. That's the main part of the sermon. But how do you obey it? How do you guard the gospel? How do you guard what's been entrusted to us, the biblical gospel? Well, the way the passage works uh, structurally is there's two subordinate clauses. Guard by avoiding two things. Worldly empty chatter and opposing false knowledge arguments. That's how to guard this deposit. First, you guard by avoiding worldly and empty chatter. That word avoid in the New American Standard could be translated turn away. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Turn away from it. Turn your back on nonsensical spiritual discussion. doesn't mean you can never talk about anything except for spiritual things. It does mean when people start masquerading as representatives of God, using His Word, in a way that's not consistent with it, and exalting Christ and clear on the gospel, avoid them. Now, if they're confused, like all of us are, about a lot of things, if they need to be taught, then we engage them. If they're teaching, and trying to promote lies about God, avoid them. It's like holding a lit stick of dynamite to try to continue to engage with such a person. They're already very damaged. You soon will be. The other phrase, the word translated chatter, empty chatter, is a compound word in the original, empty noise. Avoid that. Turn them back to Christ, turn them back to His saving beauty that beams from every page of the Bible. If they won't have Him, we don't have another message. The pillar of New Testament commentary said this is a reverse image of the problem that helped precipitate the need for Paul to write this letter. Some have departed from, that's what's in our passage, gospel teaching and its aims. And they've turned instead of the glorious gospel, they've turned instead to meaningless talk. This is what Paul's talking about in chapter 1 of this letter when he says some have in fact already turned away to meaningless talk. And in chapter 5, some widows whose husbands have died have turned aside to follow Satan. Chapter 5, verse 15. So Paul tells Timothy to employ the same advice of making a conscious turn but on the basis of gospel truth and in a Godward direction, avoid such people. A pastor's energy and time, the commentary said, could be totally absorbed in. Uh, in taking with seriousness what boils down to vapid babble and fantasy. This is a situation Paul envisions for Timothy here. Timothy, you got a job. Now I know when you're marching your 21 steps and you're guarding this sacred trust, be a crowd over here, crowd over there, somebody here, somebody there, somebody on every side going to be saying, No, 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 not that, this. 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 Constant distractions. Guard. What has been entrusted to you? I was walking and meditating on this passage this week. And kids, I don't know if this will make you hungry, but this is the picture that came to my little simple mind. It was an Oreo cookie. Probably got your attention with that. So I was walking and meditating, and it was like an Oreo cookie. Like, okay. The cookie wasn't made of sugar and carbs. It's not the kind you're probably thinking of in your mind. It was made with the love of Jesus and with his word, the outside was love, the inside was truth, the other outside was love, truth in the middle, love on both sides, love, truth, love. And the reason that picture came to my mind, which is probably very simple and borderline foolish, is because I think the passage is basically saying this. If we don't love you, we won't tell you what is true. But if we tell you what is true, it's because we love you. So whole churches, like the church at Ephesus, the one that Timothy's pastoring, is commanded in the book of Ephesians to speak the truth in love. Not as love, badger people with truth, but lovingly, both sides, truth. Love people, tell them the truth with love. This is how you guard what's been entrusted to you. You avoid worldly and empty chatter. But you also guard the gospel by avoiding something else. You can see the second subordinate by avoiding opposing arguments of what is falsely called called knowledge. If a person who professes to be a Christian is not able to rejoice in Jesus by seeing that all of the tributaries of the Bible lead to him, I'm going to say it again another way, If a person who says they're a Christian is not able to delight in Christ as they see him more clearly in his word, then they need to be taught to see him and delight in him. If he's not seen as delightful, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, I assure you the problem's not with him. If he's not seen as something and someone to be rejoiced in and loved and cherished and prized and valued, The problem's not with Him. We need to be taught that. That's true for all of us. But if they're opposed to rejoicing in Jesus, that's a different situation. If they're opposed to delighting in the one to whom all the tributaries of the Bible lead, I don't care how much Bible they use. They're not using it biblically. Or to quote chapter 1, they're not using God's law lawfully. If they can use the Bible to nuance all sorts of knowledge, but their lessons are not consistent with Christ and his glory, then their theology is not culminating in doxology and nothing about it is God-honoring. In 1 Corinthians 8.3, Paul said, if anybody thinks they know anything, they don't know what they ought to know. But if anybody loves God, they are known by him. The most important knowledge isn't what you know. The most important knowledge is who knows you. Does God know you as his child? One way you will know that is that you love him. So Paul tells Timothy, avoid people who have arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. If you just turn or scroll to 1st Timothy chapter 5, uh, chapter 1 verse 5, you would see in verse 6, some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Chapter 1, verse 6, fruitless discussions. Verse 7 says they talk a lot about stuff that they make confident assertions about, and Paul says in the passage they're wrong about all of it. They just keep talking very confidently, and they're totally wrong. Paul tells Timothy in our text to avoid such people. Over in 2 Timothy, He says in chapter 2, verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. Well, the command is guard. The reason, some have embraced the faith and the power is grace. Briefly on the reason and the power. The reason for the command to guard. Why? You can see it. It's as clear as, clear as it is sad. Some who have embraced this nonsense have departed from the faith. You know, I trust you know, you're about to know if you don't know. Some people left Jesus because of stuff that he said. But the people were described in a very interesting way. Disciples. John chapter 6, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As a result of what? What he had taught. So Jesus turned and looked at the 12 and said, John 6, 67, do you want to go away too? He's not changing the message. He's not going to accommodate it to what you like. He loves you enough to tell you the truth. Love, truth, love. He loves you. He tells you the truth because he loves you. The same thing happened in the church at Ephesus. People walked away from Jesus. They looked like Christians until they didn't. This passage says the reason you have to guard this is because, quote, some went astray from the faith. Paul knew who he was talking about in that verse. That's where the tears come in. Timothy knew. The whole church knew. This is a sad verse. And it's also a needed warning for all of us who profess to follow Jesus. Just like the soldiers at the tomb of the unknown. Just stay there. Just do your job. Don't leave don't waver don't back down how how George? how do I how do I not become one who leaves the faith it's in the last little line of the book don't miss the last little line of the book guard the gospel because some have departed here's the power here's the supply grace Be with you. If Timothy and anyone else in the church is going to make it to the end, if I'm going to make it to the end, if you're going to make it to the end, if you're not going to burn out or give up or abandon the faith, if Timothy's going to prove himself to be a genuine convert, a true Christian, one who's been united to Christ by faith forever, then it will not be by Timothy's doing. It's not your willpower. It's not your determination. It's not you making a bigger promise to God so that you can prove to Him how much you really, really, really mean it. The fuel to fight, the octane to overcome, the obstacles to fidelity to Jesus, the necessary nutrient to never abandon your post is the grace of God. This is not to suggest in any way that remaining faithful will not require extreme effort. It will on Timothy's part, it will on your part, it will on mine. If we will make it to the end, rest assured, you will work hard to do that. We've already talked about what it means to stand guard, but to say that grace is the ultimate reason that anybody does it, that anybody perseveres, is to assert that making it to the end without apostatizing from Jesus is ultimately not owing to our doing, but to God's doing. Or Philippians puts it this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your job and my job. Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. God working in you causes you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, grace is not opposed to effort. You've heard this before. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace actually requires effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. No one's going to say to God in the end, I got here because I was better at Christianity than all those other people who fell away from the faith. Nobody's going to say that. All who make it to the end are going to be singing that old song, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. All grace. That's why Paul ends this way. It's not just a tag or a space filler. It's not white noise. Grace be with you. You want to guard the gospel? Get the right octane in your tank. Look at the bloody cross of Calvary where Jesus died to supply you with infinite grace. There's two things I want to say about that little line in closing. Grace be with you. The pathway and the people. If I were to promise you concerning the pathway, if I were to promise you, if I take this little map out of my pocket and I give it to you and I say this is a treasure map, If I were to promise you that if you follow that map the grace of God would be available to you in endless supply if you find the spot where the X is marked would you go to that location? Well I already know something about you. If you're a Christian you will. Indeed all Christians do. Many of you right now are. If I could promise you that if you'll just put your life on the tracks of God's grace, just stand there. Just stand on the pathway of His grace. You'll get pummeled by the God of all grace. Would you go stand on that track? Or do you have, as I've already referenced and Matt was talking about also, do you have a so-called version of so-called Christianity that's totally far into the Bible? Are you insisting that God give you His grace on your terms? Don't lay your own track and ask God to run the locomotive of his grace on your pathway. Have you noticed that the closing opening and closing verses of almost every book of the New Testament is grace to you beginning grace be with you ending. That's what's happening here. Nearly all the books of the New Testament grace to you verse one grace be with you verse last you know what that means. You find the grace in the book. It's word-saturated life. God's word saturating our life. It's a not leaning on our own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but in all our ways acknowledging him, his understanding. It's not our mind, it's his mind. We are immersed in his word. Here at Grace Church, we're trying I mean, we're stumbling and fumbling along, but we're trying. Preaching through books of the Bible, teaching through books of the Bible and theology. Our small groups walking straight through books of the Bible at least once a year. I almost brought all of mine today. i got 14 volumes. They stand about this high. i got my own handwritten notes on all those books of the Bible. we got ladies studying 1 John and men meeting for other Bible studies. There's tons of one-on-one discipleship here happening. You know why? Because all those people are trying to do one thing. Put their life on the pathway where God just runs you over with His grace. The reason I'm saying that is because this letter is written to a person who's a pastor of a church. That's where you find the grace in His word with His people. That's the pathway, but as I mentioned, the people. The last little word, it's too good for me not to double click on. Grace be with you. The you is plural. It's interesting that this book is addressed to one person, Timothy, but all the contents of the book are couched in the context of a local church. Not even Timothy who received the book. It was written to Timothy. Not even Timothy can receive the blessings of God contained in this book unless he's united to a local church like the one described in the book. The person to whom the letter is addressed is a beneficiary of all the blessings contained in the letter only insofar as he, Timothy, embeds his life in a visible body of believers, a local church. Timothy can't even have the blessings unless Timothy is part of a people that are like those described in the book. If you claim to know and follow Jesus, but you're unwilling to unite your life with Christ's church, then I love you enough to tell you that you're not under his grace, you are under delusion. I'll put that another way. The grace that comes to all who belong to God, that is, all who are in Christ Jesus by faith, comes through the Word of God written in community of Christ's people, the church. Now, I don't know much, but I do know that the Bible is drenched with this truth. Your access, my access, to the necessary, non-optional, essential, required, mandatory, endless supply of the power of God to live unto God until we are at last home with God is His grace. And He has been pleased to make His grace available to us in abundant supply as we live our life in harmony with other recipients of His grace, a.k.a. a gospel-dominated local church. Grace be with y'all. Paul's clearly writing to the whole church when he addresses it to Timothy. If you don't want to experience Jesus in, with, and among the family where Jesus said that he pours out his grace, I have no idea what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not only what we're saved from, but especially what we're saved for. And the bottom line assertion of Christianity is that God saves us by himself, for himself, into his family. And in accord with the Scriptures, we joyfully assert and affirm God's grace includes the bloody death of Jesus to pay for the penalty of our sins. But we also affirm that His bloody death, in accord with His saving purposes, includes the beautiful, life-giving, life-changing, life-supplying, lifelong grace of Jesus generously lavished upon all Christians who walk in fellowship with His church. So my application is twofold. Number one, negative. Number two, positive. I say it provocatively, but I mean it blood earnestly. Number one, if you do not want to make it to the end as a faithful Christian... I'm about to tell you how to do that. If you want to be one of the people that Paul says, go astray from the faith, here's what you need to do. Abandon your post. Do not guard what's been entrusted to you. And you will become one of the many miserable whose own heart is cannibalized by seeking something other than Christ to satisfy you. That's all you got to do but positively if you do want to make it to the end I think it would help us to remember our third infantry regiment those friends who are on top of that crest of that hill right now at Arlington National they've been repeating the same 21 paces in front of that tomb of the unknown the entire time that we've been in this room According to my watch, there's been three guard changes while you've been sitting there listening. Why? This is really the question of the whole passage and the whole book. Why? Is it all just pomp and show hyper-patriotism? Some may think so. But I'm persuaded that there are perseverance for 75 years, morning, noon, and night, is a symptom of something else. It's a symptom of others who have placed a value on something. You see, the commanders of those soldiers perceive that that tomb is of great value. Therefore, they guard it day and night. At the end of the day, do we really understand what the Bible places the highest value on? Do we know what God esteems most valuable? Better yet, who the Bible places the priceless value upon? See, it took him a while. He's a slow learner like me, but Peter got it about 20 years after the resurrection. He wrote a little book, and he said, this is, Precious value. Christ. See, Paul ends his book with a charge to the Christian soldier. Don't stand down, don't quit, do not compromise. See, the question is not, how great is the cost? You mean when it snows and rains? When the Pentagon's on fire? The the question's not, how great is the cost? The ultimate question is, How valuable is the treasure? We're willing to spend anything for something we think is worth more. If the value of Christ and his gospel, if the word of God written is of supreme worth to us, then our responsibility to guard this treasure will not be seen as a sacrifice. It will be embraced as a very high privilege because Jesus is of such value, do not take your eyes off of Him through His Word, with His people. Because some who thought He was not so priceless have gone astray from the faith. And we believe that for every failing to obey this command... Jesus already died to forgive us if we'll repent and return to Him. After we pray together, we're going to sing a wonderful chorus hymn, and you'll be invited following that song to make your way to the Lord's Supper elements. Let us march there 21 paces in all with a fresh reminder that He's called us to guard this beautiful gospel. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sin of sloth. Thank you for dying for all the times that we've entertained and engaged in worthless babble about you. Thank you for dying on the cross outside of Jerusalem for all the times we've been full of pride trying to present our spiritual nonsense as knowledge when it was just false knowledge. And most of all, thank you for you and for your grace. Thank you for dying to pay for the grace that we need to be forgiven of our sins, to be restored to you, to be empowered to live for your glory. Thank you for giving your grace to your churches We gladly submit our lives to you and to your family, and we ask that you would keep us faithful to the end. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.